If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul was led of the Holy Ghost to write 1 Corinthians to deal with sin that was running rampant in that church at Corinth. Yet Paul addressed them as brethren. And he pens chapter 15 to defend the truth of the resurrection. To defend the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ had in fact been risen from the dead. 2,000 years later, we're still defending the truth of the resurrection. 2,000 years later, we are still defending the truth that Christ is indeed risen. And note this. In those 2,000 years since the angel said he is not here, he is risen. Since 2,000 years since those, da- those words have been uttered, the most God-hating atheist through history has never been able to produce a body. And they never, ever will. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read to your hearing the first 11 verses, and then I want to read verses 20 through 23, and speak to you this morning on an Easter sermon for the whole world. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1, hear now the word of the true and living God. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received in which also you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you as good news unless you believe for nothing for I deliver to you of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you, and so you believe. Now verse 20. And now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, and by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we have read your holy, inspired, infallible inerrant, and authoritative word. God, we pray that in the time that we have remaining, make this applicable to every heart and to every life. May your word go forth and accomplish what you would have it to do 
For we know that it will, for you tell us in your word that it will not return to you void. God, guard every heart and mind and have us seated before your face and have us to come away from this revived, renewed. And if you'd be pleased, if there's one here among us that needs it, saved. For all these things we ask and pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. This chapter, particularly verses 3 and 4, are the clearest explanation of the gospel in the Bible. I brought a message from this from these verses entitled, What is the Gospel? Because so many people do not have a proper understanding of what the gospel is. And the resurrection is the cornerstone of the gospel. And it is the cornerstone of of the Christian faith. I want to draw some things out to you from this passage. Point number one, I want us to look at verses one and two as we see the cruciality of the gospel. The gospel is essential. The gospel is crucial. Look what it says. It says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaim to you as good news which also you receive, in which also you stand. He says, I proclaim to you the gospel. The God, not a gospel, but the gospel. There is only one. There is one single, sole, solitary gospel. There are not many gospels. There is one gospel. He says, which I proclaim to you as good news. That is what gospel means. It is Good news. It is the good news of Christ dying for sinners. He says in verse 1, he says, you received it and you stand in it. You stand on the firm foundation of the gospel. Verse 2, look what he says, by which also you are saved. And then look at the next word that comes after saved. If. If. If you are saved, if you hold fast. My grandfather said, he used to say it very often, if is the smallest word in the English language, yet it is the most powerful. We all will make these great presumptions and they can hang on the word if. If you are saved, if you hold fast to what you have been taught, if you hold fast to the word that has been proclaimed. You are saved by this if you believe it. And the gospel is non-negotiable. The gospel is non-negotiable. That's why Paul says the gospel, specific, a specific gospel, the gospel, the gospel is non-negotiable. There are non-essential issues that we can disagree on as Christians. We can disagree on baptism mode. Whether to sprinkle or, or we believe immersion. I, I, I firmly believe that the scriptures teach that a person needs to be fully immersed uh, uh, in, in the mode of baptism. But we can disagree on that. We can disagree on eschatology. We can disagree on end time stuff. People can be post-millennial or amillennial. We here as a church uh, hold to a pre-millennial uh, uh, eschatology. You can, be, you can hold to a pre-millennial rapture, a mid-tribulation rapture. Uh, I don't see that, but we can disagree on that. That's not an essential matter. But there are certain non-negotiable issues that one must, must, must hold to 
in order to be a Christian. Like, for instance, the triune nature of God. We don't see the word Trinity in the Bible, but the doctrine of the, of the Trinity is clearly expressed in the Scriptures. One must believe in the deity of Christ. A co-worker of mine talked about a conversation that she had with a gentleman recently who outright just denied the deity of Christ. One who makes such a profession will not see the kingdom of God. In order to see the kingdom of heaven, you must believe what this book says about Jesus Christ. Believe in His incarnation. Of God coming to man because man could not go to God. Of His virgin birth. That He was born of a a woman who never knew a man intimately. We must believe on the return of Christ. He's coming back. We must believe that. We must believe what that book says about sin. We must believe what this book says about sin. We must believe that there is a heaven. We must believe that there is a heaven for Christ died so that we can go to heaven. But if we believe in heaven, we must also believe that there is a hell. Jesus believed that there was a hell. He spoke more about hell than he did any other subject. That is an essential, that is a non-negotiable issue. You must believe that there is a hell. And you must believe the gospel. You must believe the gospel. If you are going to be in God's holy heaven, in His holy presence, then you must believe His gospel. Point number two, verses three and four, we see the components of the gospel. We see what makes up the gospel. Look what it says, verse three. It says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. The first point, the first component of the gospel is the death of Christ. The death of Christ. And then underneath that, is, uh, underneath that umbrella is a, is, is a culmination of other things. We must believe in His incarnation in order to believe in His death. We must believe in His sinless life. We must believe that His death was that substitutionary atonement. We must believe that Christ received the torture and the wrath on our behalf. We must believe that Christ did in fact die for sinners, that He died for everyone all through the ages that will believe upon Him for the salvation of their soul. And one can ask, well, how can one man dying atone for the sin of all those people? Everyone from, and the people are made up, you read in Revelation, of people from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation all throughout time. How can the death of one man atone for all of that sin? Listen to me when I say this. It's because of the value of that man. If you were to take a great big cosmic scale and on one side you put all of creation you put every man every woman every child who's ever lived you put mountains and molehills and and lakes and streams and rivers and oceans and valleys and all of creation on one side and you put Jesus on the other he outweighs them all 
How could the, the death of one man atone for the sin of so many? Because that man is worth more than all of the others put together. He is the God-man. And think about this. We thought about this this past Friday when we celebrated Good Friday. It was good for us, but it was bad for Jesus. Good Friday cost us nothing, but it cost Jesus everything. And we look at that, we look at that cross, that it had, and the reason for the cross, the reason why Jesus went to the cross is because of our sin. It's because of our sin. I put Him there. And so did you. I talk very often about making the Christian faith personal for you. Personal for you. For that's how you have victory in this life. To know that Christ died for sinners. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you may be repentant and born into the family of God. And heaven may be awaiting for you and the church. But you are one of the members of that church. And if you are one of the members of that church, you were one for which Christ died for, and it was your sin that put Him on the cross. Every lie you've ever told, everything you've ever stolen, every time you took the name above every name, the one that gave you eyes to see, ears to hear, birthed you into this nation where we have such extravagance, and you take His name and use it as filth. Use it to show uh, uh, fit to, to, to show uh, um, disgrace. Take the name above every name. And it was all of that, all of our sin, put Jesus on the cross. It was because of our sin that He had to die. So the first component of the gospel is the death of Christ. The second one is the burial. For Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then it says, and then He was buried. The burial of Christ is the other component of the gospel. The burial of Jesus underscored the fact that Jesus really did die. He really did die on the cross. And the burial of Jesus sets the stage for what was to come next. Because the burial is the end, right? The burial is the end. You think about when a person dies and the set of events that takes place after that, right? Especially here in our country. Now, in other places, it's customary that when a person dies, they're buried that day. But here in, the, here in the States, there's a set of events that take place. First is you're going to get the news that that person's dead. Second thing you're going to do is you're going to start telling others. You're going to start maybe making phone calls. Third thing you're going to do is you're going to plan the service. You're going to plan for what the, the next course of events are going to be. Fourth, you'll... Have friends come over to the house. Have friends come see you at the funeral home maybe. And then the fifth and final thing is the actual service where you bury the person. And it's at that burial when it's final. That's when death is final. That's when it's final for everyone else, right? It's after that 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 person then becomes an afterthought. It's after that that you move from talking about that person in the present tense to now the past tense. And just the blink of an eye goes from is to was. This is why the burial of Jesus matters. It underscores, it lets us know that Jesus really was 
dead. He really was dead. And it makes him being dead, it, his burial makes the next component all the more astonishing. So look what, keep looking, look what it says. It says, for Christ died according to our, uh, for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried, and then he was raised again the third day. Jesus went from is to was to is again. And even more so, he, he goes from is to was to is again to forever will be. Because of the testimony of the Scriptures tells us Jesus has in fact always been. Christ did the impossible because Christ is the impossible. Jesus was dead, He was buried, He was risen, and now He is alive forevermore. Christ came back from the dead and He said just before He died, it is finished. I love that word. It's one word in the Greek, tetelestai. Tetelestai. In the Greek, it means it is finished. Jesus says it is finished just before he dies. And his resurrection from the dead is proof that it was indeed finished. On this Easter Sunday of 2023, the remains of Buddha are still in the grave. The remains of Muhammad are still in the grave. If you can crack open those uh, um, pyramids in Egypt, you will find the remains of Egyptian pharaohs. And you think about all of the other false religions that have come down the pike. Joseph Smith is still in the grave. Charles Taze Russell is still in the grave. Mary Baker Eady is still in the grave. But glory be to God this morning, that borrowed tomb is empty. And glory be to God, the angel said that he is not here. And glory to God in the highest, the King of kings and the Lord of lords has risen from the dead. The cross proved God's love. God in His love proved it to us in the cross when He took the, mo the only innocent human being, the only innocent human being to ever live. He was tempted in every point that we are, yet without sin. He never sinned at all in His 33 years of life. Never in thought, never in word, never in deed. And yet God in His love, His love for His creation, His love for His church, takes the punishment that you and I deserve, the wrath that you and I store up every time we sin. And Jesus pushes us out of the way and lays down on that cross and God pours out His wrath upon Him. God proved His love in the cross. I make this analogy every year. I love all of you. I love all of you. It is the honor of my life to be your pastor. It is the honor of my life to be your pastor, to see you Wednesday night, to see you Sunday morning, and every other time we can steal away to, to be together. I love you all. But if it ever came down to y'all and that kid right there, I'll see you on the other side. I don't have that much love in me. <laughs> But God does. But God does. And the, the cross proved God's love. The resurrection solidified it. The resurrection 
solidified it. Point number three, verses five through 11, we see confirmation of the resurrection. Paul goes on, he gives the gospel, he tells what the gospel is and in and, and talking about the resurrection, defending the resurrection, and then in verse five through 11, he goes on to give evidence and points to eyewitness testimony. In culmination with the gospel, we see that there were three women that went to that tomb on resurrection morning. Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they go to the tomb, and we talked about that this morning in the sunrise service. Can you imagine what they, what they thought? Can you imagine what they, how they were feeling? They walk to that garden tomb. They're expecting to see a great big stone that they gotta figure out how to push out of the way. They're expecting to see the dead body of the Lord Jesus still inside of that, and they get there, and that stone's no longer there. And that body in that tomb is no longer there either. Can you imagine what they thought? And then the angel appears to the ladies and he says, look, go, tell the disciples and Peter. And that's what Paul says in verse 5. And he appeared first to Cephas, that's Peter. He appears to Peter. The angel tells the women to, to especially, they, he especially mentions Peter. Go tell Peter. Why? Because Peter needed to be restored. Peter needed to be restored. Peter had denied the Lord three times. He feared death. He feared that the same thing that was happening to Jesus would happen to him. He got caught up in his emotions and he denied the Lord three times. And he remembered just as soon as he said, just as soon as he got that third denial out, he remembered the words of the Jesus, that Jesus told him that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And it hit him. And Peter was in grief. Peter was depressed. Peter was down. And God knew that Peter needed to be restored. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of second chances. Heck, He's a God of second, third, 25th, 57th. God is a God of second and third chances. He gives us opportunity to make wrong what we, to make right what we've done wrong by casting it at His feet through our repentance and our crying out to Him. First John tells us, right? For we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin, to, to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he appears to Peter. He appears to Peter. Then to the twelve. Then to the, then to the twelve. Verse six, make note of that. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. What's Paul saying there? Paul is saying that at the time of him writing and sending this epistle, most of those 500 people that saw the risen Christ were still living. When you hold that Bible in your lap, you are not holding Aesop's fables. You are not holding just the Christian religious book. You are holding history. You were holding true events that actually happened. He actually rose from the dead. He actually died on Friday and he actually rose from the dead on Sunday just like he said that he would. And he appeared to, at one point, more than 500 people. And you know how the Bible usually didn't like to count women and children. So there's no telling how many people he actually appeared in front of. And of the time of this writing, most of them were still alive. 
still alive. Then to James, it goes on to say, then to James and all the apostles, then make note of verses 9 through 11. Look what it says. Verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So the proof of the resurrection. So the last one that that Christ appeared to was the Apostle Paul on the, the road to Damascus. But one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection that can be seen to this day is not just that empty tomb. Yes, we could go get us go get us a plane ticket. We could take a flight to Jerusalem, Israel, and we could look at all the supposed sites where they think Jesus may have been buried. Every one of them are empty. Every one of them are empty. You will not find the remains of the Lord Jesus Christ because there there are no remains. They're in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father. So not just the empty tomb is proof, but the testimony of the myriads of changed lives throughout history. You look at the Apostle Paul. He said it himself. He was the least of the apostles. He was not worthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. He persecuted Christians. He sought after to put them in prison and kill them. But by the grace of God, he was changed. And that is the greatest proof of the resurrection that we can see in our day is how Christ has changed people. How He has taken what was unworthy. How He has taken what was dead and He made it alive. How He has taken what was a sinner. And every one of us were sinners. Some may be still. And in His grace, washed us in the blood of Jesus and made us new. Again, not overhauled. Again, not refurbished, not worked on, but brand new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Brand new. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The greatest testimony to the resurrection is all of the resurrected lives, the changed lives, the people that have gone from death to life, people that have gone from drunkard to sober, people that have come from addict to Christ. The proof of the resurrection, you see it in changed lives. Point number four, verses 20 through 23. You see confidence of the resurrection, confidence of the resurrection. Look what it says. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. The confidence or the, the hope that we have since Christ has been resurrected is that those who know Christ will be resurrected as well. 
That grave's not the end. I'm, I'm so mindful of that cemetery every Easter morning. For the Christian, the grave is not the end. Well, honestly, for no one, grave is not the end. There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection unto eternal life with Jesus forevermore, or there'll be a resurrection to eternal damnation. Which one will it be? Christ taught more about hell than He did any other thing in recorded in the New Testament, recorded in the Gospels. Christ taught more about hell than He did anything else. Why? Because He came and suffered and died so that people do not have to go there. So that people do not have to go there. Ronnie read this morning from 2 Peter. And how it is not God's will that any should perish, but that all come to repentance and faith in Jesus. Five, I'm going to give you five things before we close. Five things, five confidences, five, five, hope, five hopes that come from the resurrection. One, the resurrection means the people of God are justified. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, He who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. Christ stood condemned. The innocent stood condemned so that the guilty can be justified. Christ took the punishment. The innocent took the punishment so that the guilty can go free. The resurrection defeated death. The resurrection defeated death. I just read that, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead, forever defeating death. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he says, Oh, death, where is thy sting? For the Christian, death does not hold a sting to us. Yes, it hurts when someone we love leaves this world. Yes, it hurts when they pass that they're no longer here with us physically. But there is no sting for the believer that knows Jesus Christ. Death could not hold Christ. And death cannot hold His church either. The resurrection, thirdly, the resurrection means union with Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 8 says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. His resurrection binds us together. We are bound together with every other brother and sister in Christ around the world and through time. We are bound together because of the resurrection. Fourthly, the resurrection gives us hope. The resurrection gives us hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We have a living hope. We have a lively hope because we have a living Savior. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. In verse number 5, the resurrection of Christ means that we're going to be raised too. That's what 20 through 21 and 22 uh, say. For since man came death, that's Adam. Adam's sin brought death into God's creation. But man also came the resurrection of the dead. That's Christ, the second Adam. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will 
never die, ever. Then he asked, do you believe this? Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Christ died for your sins? Do you believe that your sins were upon Christ on the cross? And do you also believe that they were forgiven when he was raised from the dead? Folks, Christ is risen. So let us act as though he is. Christ is seated upon his throne. So let us act as though he is. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. So let us sing as though he is. And Christ will come again. So let's live as if it might be today. He's risen, folks. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and how I've unworthily tried to unfold it. Now, Lord God, as we put the, bring the culmination of this service to a close by partaking in your precious holy element, God, we pray that we would search our hearts, that we would have joy in our hearts as we take this meal, that as we sit around your table, that as we think on your broken body and on your shed blood, that it would be all the more special here on this Resurrection Sunday. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.